Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate, And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today is the founder and president of North Cove Advisors, a market research firm covering Canadian housing, household credit, and broad macroeconomic trends for institutional investors from around the world. More recently, he launched Edge Realty Analytics, a research service exclusively available to top real estate professionals. He has been quoted widely in the top media, including the Globe and Mail, McLean's Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and many, many others. In this episode, we take a slight departure from my normal TEDM discussion style as we dig into one of my favorite conversations around our Canadian economy and Canada's housing market. Listen in, enjoy. Ben Rabideau, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me. I am really excited to have you on the show for a number of reasons, which we'll get into, but thanks for joining me. Thanks, Patrick. It's great to be here. So, Ben, uh, the first time I heard you uh, was in a discussion, in a in an interview with uh, Steve Soretsky, who's a Vancouver realtor and cool cat kind of guy. I've had him on the show and uh, love his view of the world when it comes to real estate. And so when I heard him interview you or when I saw that he was having an interview with you, I wanted to listen in, which I would normally. And I went, this guy's cool. I like your view of the world when it comes to research and analysis. So uh, we're going to get into that. But for the listeners and the viewers, uh, let's first off just say, Ben, what do you do? <laughs> uh, well, I, I am in the real estate research space, as you noted. Since 2013, I've run a research firm called North Cove Advisors. And my clientele in that firm are institutional investors. So these would be the 
pension funds, the mutual fund companies, hedge funds, anyone that's running big pools of capital. And for them, I generally trend, try to cover major trends in the Canadian economy with a lot of focus on where hidden risks might lie. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you are a, an economy watcher in Canada, you'll know for years we've been flagging risk around housing and household debt and uh, interest rates and some of these things. And so naturally, that's where my focus landed. So I spent a lot of time looking at housing for them. I've for, for years have gotten requests to have a research product that's geared towards real estate professionals like realtors or mortgage brokers, but could never make it work just in terms of the, the, the issue around limiting the distribution and was finally able to make it work uh, and have started a research firm called Edge Realty Analytics. And, uh, and so I think that's also, I, you've, you've managed to find your way to, to, to my research there. And so I, I do try to add value for real estate professionals, keep them very much in the loop around what's happening on the housing front. I think I was one of your, got to be one of your first clients after you announced that because I went, this is cool. And, uh, and I love your research, by the way. I love the infographics. I love the way you position it. And, you know, as, you know, as the Real Estate Investment Network, we're always looking for different perspectives, but also different research. And uh, certainly if you were depending on <laughs> StatsCan for anything that matters, uh, you'd be uh, finding yourself very short, uh, very shy of what you actually need to make any kind of decisions based on current data. Uh, we can get into that a little bit later. I'm, I'm always happy to throw StatsCan under the bus because the it's just absolutely awful in terms of producing uh, data that we can use in the world of business and the world of real estate. So when I saw your stuff, it was great. So good job. Uh, I love your stuff. And, uh, you know, it, and I don't, I don't normally promote really anything other than when I have a guest on that does, you know, produces a great product. I'm, I, I really like that product, by the way. And uh, past couple of months that I've received it, I've shared stuff and it's been very, very good. So well done. Well done. Well, thank you. And I appreciate that you, you like the infographics. And maybe if I could just really quickly say what specifically the product is uh, for your listeners. So it is limited to real estate professionals. So you do have to sign up with a valid professional email address. That's one of the stipulations around being able to have this product is that I need to, to know who my clients are. And then with that, you get two months, a minimum of two reports a month um, with the kind of the, the, the keynote being or the, the, the flagship being the uh, the edge report, which covers all the important macroeconomic trends, very deep dive, keeps you positioned around the risks around housing. And then with that, um, we do monthly infographics, as you said. So we try to k- take some key concept, turn them into these great marketing pieces for real estate professionals. You can then share them with your clients and your prospects. You don't have to attribute it to me in any way. You just share it as your own. Uh, and it's just a good way for, for real estate professionals to look smart and keep in touch with their client base. Yeah. The other thing that we're hoping to roll out in, in within a couple months is a survey that, that's attached to the research. Uh, and what it'll do is aggregate input from real estate professionals across the country. Mm-hmm. And will give us some really interesting baseline data around the views around housing from mortgage brokers, realtors, developers across the country. And it'll it'll allow Edge Realty Analytics clients to dive in through a through an interactive graph portal and see that data. And so they might be able to say, well, how are mortgage brokers in BC feeling about the X and how are, you know, what's foot traffic through open houses looking like over in Quebec or whatever Mm -hmm. it might be. And so we're in the early stages. We have to build up the network enough that we can get to that point. But that's, that's the view. And that's ultimately how I sold it to my North Cove clients, because they very much value that data as well. So that's how I was able to get them on board with sharing that what is otherwise institutional quality research. Well, listen, as you're talking in real time here, because we have not had this conversation before, I'm thinking, you know, 
uh, RAIN is a national organization with a database that is very far reaching across Canada, many thousands of investors deep. I think we need to uh, we need to get a survey for investors only, and so and, and to give some data that we can share uh, and ask some very specific questions. Because of course, Rain members are investing in different property types, lots of single family stuff, lots of duplexes, you know, triplexes, you know, quads, all the rest of it, but as well as multifamily. So uh, there would be some good insights to share there. I think. Uh, anyways, yeah, hundred percent. I see a potential joint venture somewhere along the line there, Ben, maybe. We'll have to talk about that a little bit later. Definitely. But let's talk about your journey into where you are today. Now, let's talk about, now I want to get into the research. I want to get into what's going on in the world today, but give me a little bit more background is how did you end up with a thing called North Cove or a business called North Cove? Like where was, what's your kind of your your journey, your history? Uh, did, you know, were you educated in that space? Uh, how did you come to this place? Sure. So if I go back just prior to the creation of North Cove. So I was actually teaching for Georgian College. Um, my background is in um, human and physical geography. And so uh, a lot of focus on population dynamics, economics, as well as the physical geography, like land, you know, landforms and geomorphology and all that fun stuff. And so ended up uh, pursuing a graduate degree in that, got that, was teaching at Georgian College. A number of courses generally throughout their what, what they would call the general education department so everything from whether it was psychology to personal finance to all sorts of neat eclectic courses I actually very much enjoyed that and and as i was doing that i started a, a public facing blog at the time that was called the economic analyst and back then stats canada that data was academic only so it was interesting like Data availability, as much as we complain about how bad it is in Canada, and it is very bad, to be clear. The quality of data in Canada, we still have massive issues around data availability and data quality, as you know. But it was, I mean, orders of magnitude worse even, not even 10 years ago. And so I had all this great access to this institutional academic data and was just posting at that time just some thoughts on the economy. Even at that time, we started to see the early stages of a real estate bull market that, that you know, I would have said even at that time looked like it was getting a little ahead of itself. This is almost, mm -hmm. this is not quite 10 years ago, but I mean, it was going back a ways. Uh, and so I just started to look at that, built out a research distribution list, a, a, a sort of a subscription list, and realized, geez, these are all institutions. It was all of these big institutions that you would recognize, uh, all these famous money managers. And, and then through the course of time, started getting requests to do consulting work. Uh, people just wanted to know more. They wanted to understand something. Or they'd see a chart and they'd say, geez, how do we find that data? And, and so I realized there's probably a, an opportunity to turn this into a research product. And I did. The uptake was, was, uh, was very good. And so I started that in 2013 and have been you know, covering housing and credit in Canada since then. As we talked about, some of the folks on this call might be surprised to see me here on uh, in a conversation with you because they may associate me with uh, a more bearish outlook on housing. And, and I have, through the years, had sort of an evolution in my thinking. And at various times, I've been skeptical as well as just, just a realist and looking at the numbers and saying, this has to go up, right? And so a few years ago, I was quite concerned around housing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm happy to talk about the current dynamics and you know where there's risk and, and, and so on. But but just to kind of track my evolution, I was for a number of years concerned around housing. I was of the view that some of the dynamics that we were seeing in housing, and in particular, the extent to which the Canadian economy was becoming levered off of housing, like housing 
I mean, especially today, I mean, you've seen my research. I mean, housing really is the Canadian economy, especially through the pandemic, right? But that's been the case for a number of years. And so, and, and my concern was, I thought we had an issue with excess demand. And so I was always of the view that, you know, this housing boom, if they ever tightened credit availability or if interest rates went up or if they tightened foreign capital flows, that this would end badly. And that was my view. And, and this was an honest intellectual view that I had. Uh, and, and I felt like it was, you know, reasonably well-founded in the data. But it turns out that I was wrong. And so, you know, we, we went through these, this series of progressive credit tightening. As you know, it's CMHC tightening, yet OSFI tightening. We went through a bit of an interest rate cycle in 2019, 2018, 2019, where we saw interest rates rise, call it, you know, 200 basis points. We went through a, a significant tightening in foreign capital flows. And the real estate market wobbled. And then it stabilized and it just kept going back up. And so if you're intellectually honest and you say to yourself, well, my view is that housing is being driven by X, Y, Z, and then X, Y, and Z gets removed and housing keeps going up. You got to stop and you go, okay, I'm missing something. If you're intellectually honest, you have to go, okay, I'm missing something here. I have to be. And so in 2018, so at what my moment came after B20 and after the foreign buyer tax. So that was 2016, 2017. Market wobbled. We saw a bit of a downturn in kind of the 905 single family, you had maybe 20% price correction in New York region, some of those, but that was really about it. And then after about six months, it, everything kind of stabilized and it started going back up. And what struck me is I was watching the inventory levels and I watch inventory like a hawk across Canada and you, you see my charts. And, and what was amazing is every month, there was just this relentless decline in inventory across the country, every province, and especially single family inventory in all the big metros. And so, you, you know, it struck me then that like, okay, we've done all this demand side tightening. And even as we're doing that, inventory is evaporating in front of us. And so by late 2018, I was just like, hey, we're missing something and, and this market's going to rip because at that time you had prices that were more or less flat. Heading into 2019, we had inventory across the country that was making new 20-year lows and it wasn't being reflected yet in pricing. So that's when I started writing to my clients said, listen, I'm wrong on this. And unless something changes on the inventory front, prices are going to surge. And that was especially true by the end of 2019, we hit 30-year lows in active listings across the country. This is before COVID. And so one of the interesting things with COVID is everyone seems to think that COVID sort of caused this housing boom. And it did. It sort of exacerbated some trends that were already in place. But we were set for a, an absolutely insane year for housing, even without COVID, as we were heading into 2019, because inventory was so low. I mean, way tighter. The market was way tighter than it was in 2016 and 2017, and yet it was not being reflected yet in pricing. And so all that to say, I came around and I started to dig into the numbers, took a different view out. It started to look at, well, what's actually happening with completions, especially single family? How does that compare with population growth? And it's just, you start to realize that yeah, there's probably some excess demand. I'm sure that's probably true. But really, the real story is there's, there's just not enough supply. And, and you know, if you're watching the supply numbers as I do, and you're watching it drop every single month for three years, making new 30-year lows, like at some point you go, okay, well, this is fundamentally a supply issue because we've tried the demand side, right? And so that's how, that, that was my evolution. I, I, today, I find myself going, 
okay, I don't love 24% year-over-year price appreciation across the country. I don't love, you know, a record high in terms of real house price growth. I think there's, you know, those things are not healthy for the long term. But at the same time, it's really difficult to see a meaningful slowdown with active listings at basically 30-year lows, right? Yeah, and I don't and I don't see that changing. You know, it's interesting, of course, we, you know, within the real estate investment network, and not all listeners are part of the rain community, but you know, we always look at the economic fundamentals that drive real estate. So first and foremost, it's regional, so it's not national. So we look at national markets, which drive it's one of our, you know, kind of our, our pet peeves is that we keep, you know, these national headlines, which are really meaningless. They, you know, you have to look at things regionally. But secondly is GDP growth. You know, what is the GDP? What is employment? What is immigration? What is interprovincial migration? All of the things that kind of affect housing. But you know something that's very interesting? It wasn't until uh, really the past couple of years, and particularly this past year and a half, where the supply side of the equation became so dominant or so prominent about the lack of supply. And that lack of supply was actually, you know, they shone a light on it because all of a sudden in the single family space, before Toronto, Vancouver, I mean, they're the centers of the universe in terms of housing, uh, Montreal to another degree. But ultimately, when you look at Vancouver, when you look at Toronto, it's all about the condo market, you know, and the supply side on the condo market seemed to kind of be able to absorb, you know, what was coming at it. And so, you know, we saw that market increase and it was all about those particular markets. Never did we anticipate, however, the single family space being in such demand. What COVID drove was the demand for more space. Now, that was a trend that was maybe starting to happen. It was inevitable. You know, millennials, yes, millennials, they want small space and they want to be cool and hip and be downtown. But every millennial at some point hits about 35 years old. And the next thing you know, they fall in love. They want kids. And guess what? Kids in 30, you know, in in a 400 square foot space doesn't work. So we we knew the demand for single family was going to come up. The supply side became now is, is become a huge and significant issue, given that supply isn't growing. Now, you your research has shown that it's dropped dramatically. Yeah. Yeah, it has. It, it has. And so. I put out one of the infographics just tried to highlight this and it looked at what's happened to resale inventory through the MLS through the past, call it 10 years. Of course, there's been a consistent drop. In fact, to, to put some context on it, when we look at active listings across the country and when I aggregate the active listings from all the big metros, we're at about half of what it was just five years ago. So you're literally 50% lower. And in a lot of the Ontario metros, especially the smaller metros, we're at about a third of normal levels. Right. And so when you you say, well, how did that happen? Right. Uh, And so what we found is if you go back uh, and you look at population growth by decade and you then look at completions by decade. Just for everybody, can we align on when you're talking about completions, how do you define a completion? So, so, So whoever's listening isn't vague about what you're talking about in terms of the term you use around completions. Okay. So when we look at the supply issue in Canada, and what I did is I went back and I looked at, well, how much did population growth, how much did the population grow each decade? And then I looked at how many new houses were added to the housing stock, right? So we call those completions. So this is literally a a new housing unit that is built, is then delivered to the public, okay? 
So if you go back to the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, what we found is that population growth in each decade was around 3 million, pretty consistently. Uh, even into the 2000s, roughly 3 million. And completions were generally running about 1.3 million. And so that, you know, that gave you a ratio of about one new completion for every 2.5 people. And we're talking single-family home housing completions. Okay, so one new completion for every 2.5 people added to the population. Then you get into the 2010s. And so this is the decade ending in 2020. And all of a sudden you go from, call it three or 3.1 million population growth to 4 million. So you added 4 million that decade and single family completions fell to 1.1 million where previously they'd been 1.2, 1.3 million. And so that ratio blew out substantially. Now all of a sudden we were completing only one new single family home for every four people added to the population. And had we kept that ratio constant, we would have needed on the order of about a half a million more single-family homes delivered that decade to have kept it in line with the ratio that we saw in the prior 40 years. So there's no question that we've underbuilt, and in particular, as you say, it's single-family. Now, what I would say to that is people would, would say, okay, if you look at what's happened in the past year with regards to housing starts, right? And so this is new housing units that are being built. They haven't been completed yet, but this is stuff that's basically started construction, okay? And they've surged. We've seen an explosion in, in construction activity. Of course, if you drive around Canada, you see it everywhere, right? Lots of new subdivisions going up. And the units under construction across the country, so these are homes that are in the process of being built, has surged to about 320,000. So record numbers. And so somebody um, that's looking at that might say, okay, well, there you go. We're building a lot and, and we're going to resolve this issue. Not a problem, but not so fast. So what you then need to do, and I do this in my research, is we deconstruct that number and we look at, well, how many of those are condominium? How many are rental apartments or just generally rentals broadly? And then how many are single family? And what we find is when you strip those out, you find that, wait a minute, single family still hasn't really increased that much. And all of the increase in both housing starts and units under construction are actually in the rental space, which is very interesting because, you know, for a number of years, we've heard all this talk across Canada about a rental crisis. And, and to some extent, it was true. It, well, it was true, especially in the cities like Toronto in 20, called 2019, 2018. But in Canada, we're famous for fighting the last battle. Right. The, and, and so we're, we're, we're great at fighting crises that are in the rearview mirror. And I'm not saying that we don't have a need for rental construction, but we have over 100,000 rental units under construction across the country. And that's really what's adding to the, all, of, all of this apparent construction activity is rental units. But Ben, just yeah. to be clear, those sure. rental units, is that primarily multifamily space? It is primarily multifamily. And so where we see it... Yeah, but here's an interesting dynamic around that. You know, I think that there's always going to be a demand for that multifamily space. But I think when it comes to affordable housing and affordable housing in terms of the rental space, what we have to identify is what's missing is that single family detached space because there's a number of professionals that can't afford a new house. They certainly can't afford to get into the housing market in Toronto, Vancouver, as an example, and, and, and certainly other regions, even some of the smaller centers outside of the GTA, and because it's just priced out of the market. So we're looking for affordable housing. They as families, they as professionals now working from home, in some cases having to work from home, 
an apartment doesn't cut it. I mean, let's face it, they're, they can't, you know, have kids and maybe kids will go back to school. And but then again, there's, you know, what happens if there's another lockdown? Now I've got a, a husband and wife trying to work from the same home. You know, they need that space. So this is all to say that in a single family world, from a rental accommodation perspective, uh, we've got some drama going on, some dilemmas that we face because that construction isn't as booming. You know, the affordability side of it makes it problematic. 100%. Yeah. I, I agree with you 100%. And not only that. And so the point that I guess I was making is we continue to underbuild single family. And arguably, we were building enough rentals for the next little while. Once these start to roll off and they're delivered to market, mm -hmm. um, I think we'll find that a lot of the talk about rental crisis in the big cities is in the rearview mirror. But to your point, the demand for single family, whether it's rental or, or for home ownership, is, is enormous. And we just don't have the supply for either of those. And what was interesting, I don't know, Patrick, do you remember there was a, a developer that wanted to invest a billion dollars in single family rentals? Yes. Uh, who was it? That was uh, Core. Wasn't that? Core Development. That's core the Development. One. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. And so listen, I, I got so much hate because I went on the radio and I said, I don't understand what all the pushback is here. Yeah. These people want to bring rental rentals to people. Like one of the issues that we find with single family rentals, and, and this is meant as no disrespect to your members who own single family rentals, but the reality of what we've seen is there tends to be a disproportionate amount of churn, right? Because the cap rate on a lot of single family is relatively low. And, and where you make a lot of your money, especially in a market like this, is on the appreciation. I mean, the average single family home across Canada, and I know you hate metrics across Canada, but $180,000 price appreciation in the past year. Yeah, but see, I get it. But just to bring that point home from an investor point of view, and this is the one thing that's overlooked far too often is you know many are buying in the condo market and in single family yes appreciation to me that's a bonus because on any given year in Canada you don't know what the appreciation is going to be but let's just say that we know it's always going to be strong and historically but you know I look at Ed markets like Edmonton Calgary uh, Regina Saskatoon they haven't seen those kind of numbers but the number that never goes away on the single family world is mortgage buy down. You know, the principal buy down, if yeah. I, if I, right now, I just did some math and I know this, so I know this math pretty accurately off the top of my head, but just in a, I can go buy a $500,000 piece of real estate in Edmonton right now. It will cash flow and I can get a sub 2% rate in terms of the mortgage. That alone is putting 10 grand a year in my jeans on just mortgage buy down. And even if I conservatively look at 2% appreciation, just be, you know, just be really the, you know, it's Edmonton. There's not any appreciation in Edmonton, whatever the story might be about Edmonton. But I look at mortgage buy down, 2% appreciation, a few bucks cash flow. The next thing you know, you know, I'm, I'm up at 20% ROI on my money, you know, 18% ROI on my money. No question. No, no uh, problem. Patrick, in that I, world. I, I, 100%. Yeah. 100% I get that. In fact, my, my first infographic that I made was looking at um, the share of first mortgage payment, very first mortgage payment that goes to principal. Yeah. And we looked at that over time. Yeah, I remember and if that you go back to the it. 1980s, it was 5%. Yeah. And today it's over 60%. 60% of your first payment on I know. an average mortgage it, is principal. Yeah. Right? And then we looked at like, well, what, what does that mean in terms of how much your mortgage you pay down after the first five years. And today it's 16%, which, you know, back in the 80s, it was like 2%, right? Yeah. So listen, I get all that. Yeah. I 100% get all that. I'm just telling you, what we see 
yeah. is the people who are probably not your RAIN members, yeah. but there is a disproportionate amount of churn when people all of a sudden go, geez, I'm a, I got $180,000 there I can free up if I sell this. And, and so you do, and then you end up with a situation where you got people that are, uh, unfortunately, they, they, the house gets sold out from under them. The point I was making around core development mm-hmm. was that's probably a good thing to have big institutions in the rental market providing long tenured rental properties for people. And I got so much hate over that. Man, I got hate over that. Well, uh, you know, to me, but you, you got hate out over it from home buyers, first time home buyers, people that aren't in the, the yep. play in the space. Okay. They're just trying to buy a home. Of course, I live in a world of investors where I'm looking at, we actually did a piece on that on the rain channel, uh, JG and I talked it through, but at the end of the day, you look at core, uh, what they're trying to do. Number one, they they'll ne- they won't pull that off in a hundred years. By the way, I mean there isn't a billion dollars worth of single family real estate that they can buy. I think their goal was in three years or something. So to me, it was much ado about nothing. I mean, you, really, you don't think so? Nope, I don't think it's available. Listen, a billion dollars worth of real estate. You do the math on that, Ben. This is a cool, debatable point. It's a thousand homes. I know, but it's a thousand homes. They still need to make money and they need to cash flow. And it isn't possible in some areas. They're not just buying for appreciation. Yeah. That's a big gamble for them to take. You mark my words. And we'll, yeah, well, what, you, you, you could be right. I think what they were trying to do is actually take a single family home, uh, split it into, let's say, a, a, a duplex and then rent. Yeah. Get, get multiple cash flows. They can't. I don't know. I, the it's math just, I'm with you, work. man. I don't think it's. I, I. I. That was my intuition too. Yeah. But I. Fundamentally, though, the idea of if you can get a big developer come in and build big tracks of single family rental. I agree. Uh, that's a great business. I agree, right? and I think where that works is let's. Go, I mean, let's just shine a light on one fundamental, and that is that the reason we have a supply issue is not because of foreign investors. It's not because of you know people buying and sitting on just the product without and not doing anything with it. It's the, 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 at the core of it, which never gets talked about, which is our municipal, even our provincial governments with all of their different rules and regulations. What does it take to get, uh, you know, from a, somebody once uh, I saw the stat and you might know it cause you're a stats guy, but in uh, 62 countries that were measured in terms of their ability to take a project, like a, for a developer to take bare land and get it developed, Canada was 61 of 62 in terms of the time. It took years when it really needs to take months. And even if it took two or three years, it wouldn't be so bad. It actually takes as much as 10 years. I mean, so we keep, you know, the, our government keeps talking. I get a little revved up about this because it kind of annoys me a lot is that we take this hit uh, that the government says, well, it's, in, it's real estate investors, they're causing the problem. Well, no, it's, it's foreign buyers, they're causing the, the, the problem. Well, no, it's actually foreign investors, they're causing the problem. Well, gosh almighty, you know, look at the, the provincial, and I've been kind of beating this drum now for a few months, but you know, at the end of the day, sit down and have a conversation about what is it gonna take yeah. to get, uh, development happening in any given region and 100 and the first thing you see is that toronto gets in their own way uh the gta gets in their own way uh vancouver definitely runs into a whole problem uh when you look at you got mounds you got ocean you got uh alr i mean so densification becomes the issue and you got more people wanting to move in so that all boils down to what's driving this real estate market today is supply and demand and the lack of supply i 100 percent agree with you 
And, and I completely agree. And actually, I've got a slightly different take on it. And, mm. and I'll run this up the flag. I'm curious to get your pushback on this. So sure. I 100% agree. Um, I think that what we have in Canada is a scenario where the the power to decide where and what gets built is in the hands of the municipally elected officials who ultimately have to answer to people in their backyard that are screaming about, geez, we don't want this building. Uh, They're going to live with those people, right? Uh, And so that creates this incentive. But then at the same time, you've got the federal government setting population growth targets that are disconnected with either the ability or the willingness of municipalities to deliver that, the housing needed. And so it sets up for a shortage. Now, what I would say is, and, and, and so let me back up. I was very much on the view that, yeah, we have an issue with foreign demand. And so, you know, look, I have no problem saying uh, I was clearly wrong on that. I, but what I would say is that because we have a shortage of housing, and particularly single-family housing, that in itself creates, I believe, excess demand and some level of speculation because nobody wants to speculate on an asset that's abundant. Everyone wants to speculate on assets that's scarce. Mm-hmm. And we all know that single-family housing is scarce. Nobody's out there trying to speculate on maple trees or Mm -hmm. something that's everywhere, Mm -hmm. right? But you take single-family housing, and we all intuitively recognize that we're not building enough of it, Mm -hmm. and now you've got an asset that becomes incredibly attractive. And so Mm -hmm. I think that the two are actually somewhat reflective. The fact that we're not building enough and that everyone knows we're not building enough is also part of the reason that it's such an attractive speculation for some people. And I got to tell you, I actually still think that there's an element of demand. I'm all in favor of, 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 of very lofty immigration targets. We need it. If you if all you do is look at natural increase in Canada, you'll see, which is births minus deaths, you'll mm-hmm. see that our natural rate of population growth is falling off Declining. a cliff. Yeah. So we need immigration for long-term supply. I have no yeah. problem with that. Yeah. But what we see over and over again, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, this is not a value judgment, I'm just telling you what happens, is we do have people that come here uh, that they get educated here. That's great. We want educated. We want bright young people. They can, and then, but then they become a conduit for foreign capital flows. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not foreign investment because this is a local. This is a Canadian, but often it's mom and dad are sending money from abroad. Now, again, that's not a value judgment. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but mm-hmm. that's I do think that's reality. And I also question whether that continues to happen in in the scale it's happening today. If we were building enough single family housing. And that's that's something I'm openly wrestling with, and I'm happy to get your pushback on that, Patrick. I, I'm not like married to that view. No, I, I don't. I don't have any pushback on it. I agree with you. I think though, what we can't measure is how much of that is actually going on, and and so totally you know, there's no measurement for it. We suspect there's a lot. It's easy to kind of shine a light on it, and you know, they'll they'll throw a number out there. Well, it's X, you know, it's X billion dollars, and 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 I don't buy those numbers. I think it's you know that's the government often is just appeasing the masses who are complaining about it. But ultimately, we don't have that number. We have no way of actually tracking it. If you've got students coming in from out of country, uh, there is no limit to how much mom and dad can send them for cash to live. And uh, so we don't really know. I mean, we have some vague idea, but we don't know what the use of that money is for. I think, though, that we can't step over the fundamental fact that, to your point earlier, is we look at the price increases over the past 15 months, and that's before the immigration world gets opened up again. I mean, any immigration that we've had, uh, if you dig deeper into the numbers, and you may know this is more than I do even, which is that there was already existing immigrants in Canada. All they did was, you know, they got a different status of, of 
of uh, immigration. So they were already, you know, yeah. they, they've been they've been here for a year and a half. So it's not like the population grew, but it's, it shows that, well, no, you had immigration of X amount. Well, that's not really true. But when we open up the borders again, I think we're going to see, you know, things really turn off. I still am I'm forecasting in my own world, and this is more gut than any kind of data, but I do see, uh, you know, we, we're starting to see sales pull back a little bit right now. I think uh, you would support that in, in almost all regions. But I think that's just more people going, I'm taking the summer off. You know, I, I, I go back to say, I don't, give a, I don't care who you are. This has had an impact on you, you know, emotionally, mentally, yep. physically. I mean, gosh, you know, vax, max, not being able to see loved ones, losing loved ones, no funerals, no weddings. I mean, gosh. I mean, yeah. people are just exhausted yeah. mentally and emotionally, and it starts to show up oh, and come out sideways, even in the separation or the or the polarity that's being created in the world. It's just like it's interesting to watch. So my sense of it is is probably third quarter this year, uh, early fourth quarter. I think we're going to see the the market just. Uh, we saw sales soften, prices not so much in some regions. Yes, uh, I, I think you would probably see the same thing I'm seeing in that regard. But I see it softening, you know, people who are calling for some kind of a crash or a bubble to burst. I, I just cannot see that happening when I look at what's going on. Well, let me jump in. Let me address all that. So I, you're 100 percent right. So where what I see is um, right now, home sales right across the country mm-hmm. have pulled back off the first quarter peak. Right. And when you look at it on a seasonally adjusted basis, of mm-hmm. course, because we know there's there's natural seasonality to home sales. You sort of have to adjust and say, OK. You know, we know that sales in the summer are lower there in the spring, but you need to adjust for all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we see is that sales in most of the big metros are down about 30% sales volumes off the first quarter peak. And you go, wow, that's a lot. But but what people don't realize is how absurdly strong <laughs> that first quarter peak was. Yeah. Like, it's just insane. Yeah. So when you chart it on a, on a graph, right? So we've come down 30% nationally from the peak. And then you you draw a line across from where we are currently we're still way above any prior level of home sales. So I I sort of use the analogy of like, we were driving on the highway at like 150, and now we've slowed down to like 100. And it feels like a deceleration, but man, you're still going 100, right? And that's kind of what's happening nationally. Um, To put it in context, like when we looked at the dollar volume of home sales in the first quarter, and we sort of compared it to GDP, just to normalize it and look at it over time, it was almost 25%, right? So, so, so there was so much resale activity in dollar terms that it would have been the equivalent of 25% of, of, of GDP. Mm-hmm. That's like three times what we've ever seen at any, any peak ever in mm-hmm. Canada. So it was so unusual. Now, we've clearly pulled forward some demand from that first quarter peak. We don't really know how much, but you're right. It, it, intuitively, it makes sense that things are going to soften a little. We find out how much demand we pulled forward as we move through the year. We're certainly not going back to the first quarter peak because that was just you know crazy. But so if we quantify this and you say, well, what ultimately drives house price declines, right? And it's at the end of the day, it, we know it's supply and demand, but if you want to mathematically graph this out, I've got this cool graph that shows, okay, the relationship between months of inventory right, which is how many homes are for sale divided by the most recent months of sale, right? So if there's 100 homes for sale and 20 of them sold last month, you'd say there are five months of inventory. It would take five months to clear that, right? Nationally, and I know you hate national stats, but I'm going to use it anyways, <laughs> nationally, we're, we're at only 2.2 months of inventory. Mm-hmm. We have never seen a single 
decline, a single monthly decline in seasonally adjusted house prices with months of inventory of less than five. So to put that in context for you, we need inventory to double or home sales to fall in half from here before we even start talking about any sort of sustained decline in prices. We are a long way, I don't care what anybody tells you, we are so far from a balanced market right now mm -hmm. that we can have home sales fall another 30% from here, no problem, and prices are still going to be going up. Yeah. And that gets back to what we talked about earlier. There's so little supply. There's so little supply. Now, the reason I, you know, first and foremost, you know, most of the individuals that are following this show are either real estate investors or they want to invest in real estate. They're in, in you know, they're either uh, business owners who are looking at economic, you know, the things that you know, economically. And so we look at things regionally in that regard. So as much as all of this is true and, and you start to look at these you know, slowdown of 30%. And, you know, you haven't seen that in, I'll go back to Alberta or even Western provinces. Yep. Sorry, that's not true because it has happened in British Columbia. But look at Alberta, look at Saskatchewan. But you're right, Alberta looks good. You know, yep. so yep. we look at those regions for that particular reason, because as investors, you know, my job is to put my money to work. I don't want to speculate. I, you know, uh, you know, I can speculate in the housing market, but I can look at the economic fundamentals that I know that drive real estate. Now, here's the dilemma, Ben. When we we know statistically, and for 29 years we've been doing this, and we know that there's a fundamental system. Whenever you see positive GDP growth, you see population growth, either through immigration or interprovincial migration, because people go to where the jobs are. The minute you see jobs happening, the next pragmatic step is that rents go up because people move into a region, they rent. And, and that's that's just the case, and especially immigrants, landed immigrants, they go, gosh, I don't know if my job's gonna be here. I don't have a credit rating. I don't know where my culture's gonna live. You know, Where do I find my, my people? And uh, so it takes them a while to get settled. So it takes two, three years before they can even uh, justify buying a home. So it takes some time to do so. The rental market goes up. Uh, or, you know, so vacancies decrease, rental demand increases. And then from the point of GDP, positive GDP growth, we know that 18 months to two years later, we're going to see housing prices increase. Well, take that whole formula and throw a pandemic into it and you go, oh, this is a bit of a head scratcher. You know, we, you know, the GDP growth that we're having and that we're seeing is actually it's not real. It's driven. Per, it's not really. It's it's driven by the fact that our government and our our Bank of Canada is writing checks. I mean, it's it's stimulus capital. You know, not you know unemployment's at its highest freaking rate. And I think the the numbers are understated. And I'd like to have your view of that, Ben, in terms of unemployment. I believe our unemployment numbers are so under. And I don't want to say it in that way. I believe that they're un, understated, but I don't know to what degree. I believe they're far higher than they actually are. And I just don't know what I think you're right. Yeah, because it doesn't, no, think, it doesn't say right to you. I mean, look at you. You know, if, if you shut your business down, you don't become a stat on the unemployment world. If I shut my businesses down, I don't become a stat in that in that that world. Plus, I think a lot of people just quit looking for jobs. They went off the job market. So that skews the numbers. And so I think we have to look very closely at what those unemployment numbers really are. Now, here's the thing about all of this. We have to look forward into. GDP growth, we know it's going to come back at some point. I, I, you know, the GDP numbers that we're seeing right now are even, they're just not real. You have to look at them through a real unique set of filters, I believe. I don't see interest rates going up in a meaningful way for years. Now, we may see a bump, but I just, until housing, to your point earlier, housing's driving our, our economy. 
And, you know, the bank has painted themselves into a corner. Uh, number one, they said they weren't going to raise interest rates, number one. Number two, if they raise interest rates, they're going to, it's going to have a, a, a kind of an impact on our economy because it's the, really the primary driver of our economy. You know, our, our exports mm -hmm. are uh, less than our imports. We're, we're at the effect of what's going on in the U.S. And, and I don't know how closely you follow the U.S. I follow it closely. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's going to have a huge impact on us. And so it's all kind of precarious right now. So uh, what was I going to ask you? Oh, first, let, let's, so let's talk a little bit about that. And, and I'm happy if you say you're full of shit, Francie, because like none of that's what my data shows. No, but, I, I don't disagree with you at all, actually. I, I think you're on the, uh, the right trail. So tell me about what yeah. you see as unemployment. Like, how do you see those okay. stats? You know, like, how do you view them? Okay, so the very first report that I put online for Edge Realty Analytics clients was a report looking at how do we understand this massive run-up in housing in the midst of the greatest economic shock in Canadian history, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so we look at like how, how much of this is a mirage. And what's amazing is how unusual this recession is in the context of every other recession we ever had. And so let me give you a couple of examples. So first off, we had household disposable income surge in the first and second quarter, in the third quarter of 2020, right? Right during those main lockdown periods, household income absolutely exploded. So we were seeing at peak 15% year over year increase in, in household income, okay? What in the world? Never seen it before in a recession. Well, then you overlay, well, what did the government do, right? And what people don't realize is the government in Canada, if you look at the change in the budget balance from 2019 to 2020 as a share of GDP, Canada blew out their budget by the most of any country on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. We had a 20% swing in the net budget balance. And so that tells you how aggressively the feds came out to underpin household income. And, and you know, part of me says, thank God they did, because they acted very decisively and sure. quickly. But there's no question in hindsight that it was... Uh, it was overkill, right? We had college kids that were, you know, getting all oh, the stimulus money for doing nothing. Like, I mean, in hindsight, but it's one of those things where, you know, there's a saying that you never criticize the outcome of battlefield surgery. It's like, mm -hmm. the shit's going to hit the fan. You got to do something even if it's wrong, yeah. right? And that's yeah. where we were, right? Yeah. We were staring at this abyss. So they did that, right? So then you look at, well, what happened to the household savings rate? Because normally in recessions, what happens is people draw down on their savings to, to, to make ends meet. Well, very much the opposite happened. We hit a 25% household savings rate in the second quarter. Mm -hmm. We've never seen that before, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and so that's continued into today, where if you look at, um, like, even things like checkable deposits at chartered banks, it just looks like a hockey stick. People are still stacking up cash okay, but in these banks, highly liquid, and they're going to blast that into the okay, economy. Okay, so let's, okay? let's break that down. Let's break that down a little bit before we keep yep. going, because I love where you're going with this. But we have to look at where did that money come from? Number one, it came from stimulus checks. Number two, it came from mortgage uh, deferrals. You know, people didn't, all of a sudden, they were yep. able to hang on Both to that money. Uh, people didn't have yep. anywhere to spend money. And they, you know, they weren't- Those as, are the big three. Those are the big three, right? Yep. Now- yeah. Okay, so I'll let you go with it, but I'm, I want to I want to ask you the question of what you think is going to happen with spending. Uh, we, you know, for all intent and purpose, you know, all the provinces are now open uh, at the time of this recording. 
uh, we're we're mid July, a little bit, bit past mid July, and uh, so we let's let's look into the future a little bit. And when this finally gets released, but here's the question for you: Where do you think the spending is going to go in the near future? Now I got my view of it, but I want to hear yours. But I don't. I wanted to stop there and say, <laughs> "Where's that?" Okay. And so, anyways, so carry on. So the the hockey stick it went up. We saw yep. everything went parabolic in terms of savings. Keep going. Yeah, and so uh, and the other thing we saw is that. Normally during a recession, we see uh, mortgage arrears and credit card arrears. Yeah. They go much higher. Maybe people will go into debt because they have to dip into the credit card to make ends meet. Uh, during the, the recession, we saw the opposite. We saw households actually pay down credit card debt. Mm -hmm. the, the, the household debt service ratio went down throughout the recession. We came out of the recession at a six-year low in the debt-to-income ratio, which the government, which media loves to quote. And so this is the first recession in history. We came out the other end with households in better shape than what we went in, mm -hmm. right? And then you say, okay, to get to your point on the employment picture, okay, I agree with you. There's no question. We can actually track... The, 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 the shadow unemployment rate, because no you can back into the share of Canadians that are unemployed, but not looking for work. Mm -hmm. And that's a weird thing in Canada. This is true in any country, but the, if you're unemployed, but you're not looking for work, you're no longer in the labor force. And so you're not technically unemployed anymore. Right? It's right. such a weird thing, yeah. right? The other thing that happened is like, people were quote unquote employed, but they were working zero hours. Right. So they were sort of uh, they were technically laid off, but they weren't fired. Mm -hmm. Right. We saw a lot of that during the pandemic. Well, that in my book, that's unemployment. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't care what you call it. You're unemployed. Uh, and so when you include both of those groups in with the unemployed, you're right. We're still well into double digit unemployment. I, I think the last time I looked at it, we we're somewhere around 14 percent, which is way above any any high any, any mm -hmm. previous recession we've seen. Mm -hmm. But here's the important point, Patrick. If you then separate the income distribution by the upper half and the lower half. This is really an important point. Mm -hmm. The dirty secret of this recession is that you, if you are in the upper half of the income distribution in Canada, not only are, is your employment unaffected, but as a group, your employment has grown. Mm -hmm. We've added jobs in the upper half of the income mm -hmm. spectrum, and you haven't had anywhere to spend your money. So you've saved a ton of money. And so this has actually been sort of counterintuitively the best of times for you, while at the same time, the lower half of the income spectrum mm -hmm. has been absolutely just, I mean, they've been crushed with this pandemic, mm -hmm. right? You look at the retail industry, the hospitality industry. Mm -hmm. And so the reality is that that employment hit a group that skewed much more heavily to renting households to begin with, mm -hmm. right? These are people that I mean, not, not not exclusively, but they skewed much more heavily to people that were not in the the active buyer pool to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so that helps explain how we can have all these strange dynamics of very high unemployment, but yet incredibly strong demand for housing, incredibly strong demand for recreational properties, all of these things that we saw. Mm -hmm. It's all there in the data, but none of it was intuitive in the early days of the pandemic. And that's why everybody, including myself, got it wrong. Yeah, I think everybody got it wrong. I certainly got a lot of things wrong and, and continue to get a lot of things wrong. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we, we look at what's happening and, uh, you know, try and use some critical thinking to look into the future. We haven't had to deal with this before. And so uh, in the housing market, I, I remain bullish on housing. I think that, you know, from my perspective and a fundamental model for investors, uh, the rental market's going to continue to grow. The supply issue is not going to get handled quickly in any way, shape or form because the real cause of it 
is in uh, you know the bureaucracy that allows builders to do what builders need to do. And, and the other side of it as well is that I think what we're going to see, you know, so as much as, you know, we're seeing, you know, we talk about a condo market recovering in, in Toronto, in Montreal, in Vancouver, uh, in some of the, you know, the major cities, which really for Canada, that's about it. But you look at the condo market and I'll go back to Alberta again, the, there's no recovery of the, the, the condo market in, in Alberta. I mean, both Calgary and Edmonton are so overbuilt. Uh, there's lots of investors that would like to give away their condos, but they can't even give them away. Now, will that become an affordability issue? And I think I think that could drive people back to the condo market in, in Alberta is just the affordability if we continue to see that single family space uh, get more expensive. So I think that could drive it. I'm interested in what you think might happen in Toronto, Vancouver, and those major centers around the condo market. I know sales are starting to pick up. I don't know if prices are coming up in that condo market. Uh, I think that uh, that becomes affordability issue because I still don't see people wanting to live downtown given COVID is kind of hushed a little bit, but it's still far from over. Well, I think you're exactly right. So it's funny you, you flag Alberta. I actually am relatively bullish on Alberta. I think whatever your projection is for house prices nationally, and I know you hate that stat, but whatever you think it is, I think the Alberta metros are going to outperform yeah. over the next few years. And there's a number of reasons for that. And, you know, I look at, so let me address that first, and then we'll get into the, the Vancouver and Toronto economy. We got markets. lots to talk about. Um, Dude, you're not going anywhere. I got so many things I want to talk to you about yet. We got a lot of ground to cover. We got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> well, here's what I see in Alberta. Uh, you, you're still dealing with world-class cities. Mm -hmm. Um, and more importantly, you're dealing with a very young, that's important, a very young, very educated workforce. Mm -hmm. you, are, you are seeing incredibly cheap startup costs for new businesses, and whether that's rent, whether that's attracting talent. Yeah. And you've got um, housing there that is so affordable relative to anywhere else in the country. Yeah. right? And, and, and not only is it affordable on a relative basis relative to other cities, but even relative to its own long-term norms. Alberta is more affordable today than it was even in 2005, 2010, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and, and that's, you know, if you look at it just in terms of carrying costs, right, on those mm -hmm. homes. So I think, I absolutely agree with you. I think that what we're going to see in the next few years is there will be more of a, of a, of a tech and startup scene in, in, in Calgary. I'm mm -hmm. starting to hear that already. I'm less plugged in in Edmonton, but I can tell you that you know, I know some folks that are on the economic development team in Calgary, and it's absolutely starting to happen. I think that's only going to accelerate. So I think it's very difficult not to be bullish. I also think, and this is getting completely off topic, but but I think this whole death of hydrocarbon story is so overblown. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the oil sands are going to be an enormous, and, and you can hate them. That's fine. You can hate them. But don't hate them while you're talking on your your your, your iPhone that, that happens to be built with all sorts of hydrocarbons plugged into it, right? So get off of all of that stuff before you start hating on hydrocarbons. The reality is it's, a, it's, it's, it's so fundamental to our way of life. And we're years, I believe, we're years away from being fully off of 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 hydrocarbon dependency yeah don't and even so get me don't I, even, I tend to be I, i'm quite bullish on don't that. even get me so, started on that i mean as as canada's shutting down you know oil sands you know we've got other countries and 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 including the u.s doubling down on pipelines and oh they just don't even get me started in that conversation but to to your point um because we could go off on that whole tangent so i agree 100 percent with you but i i think that 
there's a fundamental that investors and and I think just Albertans need to know, you know, need to consider overall. I, you know, I, I came back, you know, I've been in business 37 years. You know, there was a very short period of time where I did have a job. I've been, uh, you know, back when I was young, 18, I was in the oil patch for about uh, seven years. So I understand the oil industry a little bit and, and, you know, just probably enough to get me in trouble. But here's the observation is, you know, back in the day and even right up until just a few years ago, probably 2007, 2008, you know, to, to drill for oil, to actually run and operate a rig took a lot of manpower. And the reality of it is, is the downturn in 07, 08 really, uh, you know, really drove innovation, which drove technology. And this again has happened again. So, you know, the 15 guys that you needed on a rig floor, whatever the number was, you know, now it's down to three and most of them are working remote control, you know, remote control from some office tower. It's like, it's got that refined in terms of their overall operation. And so this goes back to a conversation that we were just having, and I want to connect it, uh, Ben, is that you said it, is that when we look at unemployment, you know, it's like, there, the great divide is in the education status. The great divide is in, you know, those who had some assets to begin with. Of course, those assets have inflated. If they've got some education, if they've got a, a, a it, all of a sudden, their, their value's gone up tremendously. I mean, think about the boomers, the wealth that's happening. And, and by the way, I just want to point out here because I'm just so I don't miss it, is that's the other reason housing prices aren't going to drop in a big way. The the wealth transfer between baby from boomers parents to boomers and from boomers to millennials is epic i don't know what the number is i've heard you know multi billions of dollars of wealth transfer so as much as we're saying that millennials aren't going to be able to afford housing well, that may be true. Many are getting, and this is happening. If you look at the mortgage business, uh, you know, you talk to individuals. More and more parents are co-signing mortgages for their kids, and they're doing all sorts of things. So that's mm-hmm. that's another reason we're not going to see housing go down. But back to the job portion of it, you know, is is that we, you know, we see that service industry, you know, retail and restaurant. I mean, it got its ass handed to it. Um, technology in Alberta is growing, and we see technology overall growing. Um, do you see the the do you see that ever coming back? Like I'm I'm wondering, you know, right now the world has changed, I think, forever. I think IT and technology is gonna be an economic driver the way, you know, strong backs and and you know that labor world uh drove it early on. You know, how do you see it? Like I just think that, you know. If you're a laborer, man, oh man, you're you're going to be picking rocks, but uh, you'll you'll make your 15, 18 bucks an hour, but there's no upside in that world and I think the demand's going to fall dramatically. But what's your thoughts on it? Well, it's hard to disagree with that general view. I think that, you know, we are moving to a world where technology and data is the new oil, right? Mm-hmm. And and it is the new gold or whatever you want to analogy you want to use there. Um, so I, I think you're right. I don't know that that necessarily precludes just generally a, a broad tech renaissance in places like Calgary. The, the other thing I would say is definitely all of the big oil companies have gotten much more uh, efficient in their operations. But at the end of the day, one of the big things that drives GDP in Alberta is oil sands capex, mm-hmm. right? It's it's capital expenditures sure. in the oil sands. Yeah. And the thing about GDP is it's a rate of change number. So, so in other words, 
it can fall for years. CapEx can fall, and it has fallen in Alberta for years. And that's like steadily weighed on GDP growth, okay? Yeah. Well, now all of a sudden, it's, it's way down here, but we're starting to see it go back up. Mm. And the fact that it's turning and it's starting to increase again means that now it's adding to GDP growth. And that, that's like, you know, it's easy to miss how important that is when you get something that for years has been detracting from GDP growth, mm -hmm. and now all of a sudden it's adding to GDP growth. That's okay? a great point. Love that. I happen to think that we're heading into, this is my view, this is highly contentious, I get that, but I think we're going to have a massive oil bull, bull market over the next few years. I think people, and, and this is a whole other segue, I'm not going to get into the, yeah. the whole reasons behind it, um, but I think that shale oil in the U.S. is fundamentally done. Uh, we're not going back to the level of output we've seen for a number of reasons. All you have to do is look at the oil futures curve. They can't hedge their production. There's no desire to, to, to burn more money in exploration. The, the high grading of the basins, like, like the Permian, is meant that they've basically drilled their best wells. So, so, so all those highly productive wells are behind them. So we can get into all that. The, 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 the spare capacity at OPEC is, is not nearly as large as what people think. And I happen to think that demand is going to come back very strongly globally. I know that we're dealing with this, with, with this damn Delta variant. But, but at some point, we're going to figure this thing out or we're just going to get back to, yeah, like I think what will end up happening is we just defang this virus. We're never going to get rid of it, but we're going to get to the point where this thing becomes like a nasty cold. And, and who cares? Nobody locks themselves up for, for a cold. Yeah. And that might not be until 2022 or whatever. But we're going to figure this thing out, and we are going to get back to massive economic growth, and, and oil is going to be a huge part of it, I hate to tell you, for the environmentalists. And I am an environmentalist, but you can't, get away, you can't sit here and, and, and live the life that we live and have all the, the, the modern comforts and yet hate on oil. That's what's giving you your standard of living. So until you like move into the wilderness, like you 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 can't you can't chirp from the cheap seats. I hate to I hate to be that guy, but that's where we're at. There you go, talking common sense again. Jeez, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, know, <laughs> I know, I know. It's common sense, people. <laughs> but let me get into let me get into well, hold on, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to yeah, say, I want to point it. something yeah. else out about one of the other reasons I'm also bullish of, uh, on Alberta, and you did allude to it, but I want to shine a, a bigger light on it is that, you know, the cost of living in Alberta, because I'm, I kind of joke that I'm bi-provincial. I mean, I live in both provinces, British Columbia and Alberta. I spend as much time as one as the other. And, uh, and, I, and so I'm buying stuff. And when I, go into, when I go to Alberta, I walk into a grocery store, I walk into a clothing store, and it's like I'm buying shit on sale. Like, it's like, oh my gosh, it's so cheap, right? It's so inexpensive. And the reason I share that is because they're, you know, I don't know what the recent stat is, but Albertans are also in the higher, uh, the most, the higher paid individuals, like the average salaries in Alberta mm -hmm. is higher in that province. Now, the thing that I, I point out here is that the cost of, for businesses to set up in Alberta is, is relatively inexpensive when you consider what the cost is in, 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 um, Vancouver or Toronto, just use that as an example. The other thing is, is Calgary becomes appealing again because they got that office space downtown that's all on sale. There's a, there's a glut of it, so it's on sale. Number two, they do have proximity to the mountains. They've got proximity to Canmore and all of the other great things that attract talent. I mean, educated talent. So it's not, it may not be mm -hmm. Vancouver and the ocean, but you know, you're only an hour and 15 minute flight from Calgary, number one, but more importantly, or as importantly, as Alberta, as a winter province, we'll call it that, for lack of better things to call it, you're only 45 minutes from the mountains and skiing if you're living in Calgary, for example. So I think that, that we can't 
we can't minimize the escalating costs in these other provinces, uh, namely Ontario and British Columbia and, and you know, Southern Ontario. We can't minimize that cost to businesses of setting up there. And, you know, if you, if you bring your cost of setting up down like you do in Alberta, that leaves you more of an upside to bonus employees, be more profitable with your business, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of my, one of the, that's one of the other reasons I'm bullish on Alberta as well, Ben, is I guess the point I'm trying to make there. 100% agree. I 100%. No matter how you slice it, it's hard to, I mean, look, if all you know is that we're lower today in terms of house price in, in, in Alberta than we were 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, how, how can you be bearish on that, yeah. right? We're still seeing economic growth. I mean, things are, are improving. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. It's uh, for all those reasons, I, I think um, the Alberta metros will outperform. Regardless of your view of what housing is going to do over the next few years, yeah. I think Alberta and Canada. The other thing is, you know, I looked at the historical gap between Alberta and, uh, sorry, Calgary and Edmonton yeah. versus the national house price. And again, I know you hate that, but but as, <laughs> as just a baseline to show, okay, you know, if national house prices were 200,000, well, where was Calgary house prices relative to that? And normally, normally Calgary traded at a premium to the, to the national average, yes. right? And we're down to, I think we're trading at 60% of the national average, mm. right? So if all you say is, well, there's probably going to be some sort of a catch up, like reversion to the mean is a very real thing in economics, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Calgary should not be trading at only 60% of the national average. Mm -hmm. And I'm not using average, I'm using house price index. So, you know, you, you, you strip out some of the compositional effects and you look at, you know, uh, an apples to apples comparison, mm -hmm. right? Um, Calgary is incredibly cheap by every metric relative to, to, to national house prices. Yeah. And I, I think that will not persist. So I think you'll see outperformance in Calgary over the next number of years. We have investors so within- I'll leave the, it there. Yeah, we have investors within the community that have actually liquidated their both their British Columbia and, and or Ontario portfolios and are moving everything into Alberta. They're going all in. I don't know that I would recommend that personally, but you know they feel really confident in it. They look at the economics and they- uh, they have a long-term view of the world. So that's the decision they're making. Now, yep. I, I did interrupt you so we can go back to the topic, but bef but the if you don't remember it, uh, what it was before I so rudely interrupted you, the, the question I would have for you is what do you see? I have a, a fundamental view of the world that says as much as COVID uh, drove the work from home initiative or that work from home uh, trend, I don't see that trend going away. I think it'll, you know, certainly dial down. Uh, you know, my story based on what I'm considering right now is the introverts are the squeaky wheel. You know, those, those or the extroverts are the squeaky wheel right now. They're all going, I got to get back to the office. I need to be in that space. And, and I don't disagree with any of that, by the way. I'm not judging it. I'm just saying is that, and there's a lot of introverts that are just quietly going, no, this works really well for me. I'm happy to work yeah. from home. And, 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 you know, when we look at what's going, because we haven't talked about the East Coast, you know, when we look at what's going on in the East Coast, we're seeing a lot of uh, housing activity uh, because people are able to, to work from home. We had some friends stop on, they're leaving Vancouver, they're driving across the country, and they both can work from home uh, for $465,000, I think it was they said. They're literally living on oceanfront, a beautiful little home on oceanfront property, and uh, they're going to both work from home. And they're going, "Why the heck do I need to stay in here? Yeah. I can go and uh, you know hang out with some people that everybody's doors are unlocked, and that's a, a lifestyle uh, change that they're making." So, what do you? How do you? Do you have any kind of uh, whether it's supported by data or just your own gut on it? What's your thoughts about this work from home movement and the effect it's going to have on housing? Sure. 
Okay, let's start with this. I think the narrative around cities being dead is dramatically overblown, okay? Now, that said, the right way to think about COVID is that this is an accelerant, right? It's taken all of the trends that were already in place and it's basically skipped them forward by about a decade, mm -hmm. right? And so if you look at what was happening with work from home, we were already on this slow, steady upward trajectory where every year you had a fraction of a percent of the labor force that moved more or less to, to, to work from home, right? Mm -hmm. And so we were, we were sort of, I mean, I, I could pull up the exact number, but call it 0.2% a year, right? Like it's modest, but you saw the steady increase where every year you had a slightly higher share of people that were working from home, okay? Mm -hmm. COVID comes along, it's basically given you 10 years of growth. So I think you're, you know, we're not going back completely to how it was pre-COVID. There, there, there is some share of the labor force that will stay in a work from home environment. And I think, I mean, look, I think what's happening with some of the technology like Starlink, where you're gonna have high speed internet everywhere in the country, I think that's gonna open huge. up huge doors. I, yeah. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Now, one of the things that does concern me here, Patrick, is when I look at, okay, what are the metros across the country that have seen the craziest price appreciation? It actually, is especially in Ontario, it's the smaller communities that tend to skew more towards recreation. Okay, so I'll give you some numbers. So where I am is an area called Grey Bruce and Owen Sound. It's about, we've seen about 40% year of year price appreciation. When you get over to the Peterborough and the Kawartha Lakes area, it's more like 45%. You get up to North Bay, which is about three hours north of Toronto, uh, you're up, you're 50%. Um, Southern Georgian Bay, which is kind of Collingwood and around the corner there, you're both 50%. These are crazy numbers, okay? Mm -hmm. And so what's happened is these are markets that traditionally have been very illiquid, right? They they generally don't have a ton of transaction volume every year. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden you had this surge in demand and, and the supply was inelastic, but the demand went way up and you had these insane price increases. Now, if we use the GTA as a proxy, one of the things we've seen in the last couple of months is you've seen a significant slowdown in single family homes, uh, home sales in the 905, which is the, the periphery around the, 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 the city of Toronto, and a very significant increase in condo activity in the 416. And I think that's a good analogy for what's happening across the province of Ontario and what I believe is happening in all the, the big provinces, which is that we had this, this strong out-migration from cities into these suburbs, especially the areas that skewed towards recreation. And we're just in the early innings of some of that migration moving backwards. Now, I'm with you. I, it's hard for me to envision what tips this market dramatically in the next year or so, just based on how skewed supply demand are. But I would say some of those little markets that have seen 50% run-ups in prices in these like highly liquid areas where we're starting to see that those population flows mm -hmm. swing the other way, that that makes me nervous, mm -hmm. right? And and I do think the historical tendency of those things to be very illiquid for long periods of time means that you know prices are volatile there. And so that those are some areas that I would be a little bit nervous about. Mm -hmm. But I, I I absolutely agree with your with your view that I think that work from home is is a structural change in the economy. It's going to persist. But this idea that like office towers downtown are going to be vacant forever is just ridiculous. Yeah. Even if it's only 20% or 30% work from home, let's just say everybody else goes back to the office, that 20 or 30% is a significant number. And, and it can't really be Without understated, the, the impact of that. Now, the other, uh, the other side of it is that, you know, I think what's driving I think what's driving people back to the core, I think is a lot of it is really uh, based on affordability. 
you know, you know, people originally go, okay, well, I'll go live in, you know, small town, whatever, Ontario, BC, Alberta, whatever it is. Uh, but now affordability is going, well, I could, I didn't catch up with that one. I didn't beat that wave. So I may as well go back and, and try and live downtown again, which is probably a second choice, but it, what it's what people see as affordable. So I think that's part of it. So it'll, it will be interesting to see how this one plays out. But what's different about this whole thing is, is we're actually having a conversation about a little bit about human psychology and what is making people, you know, make, what is having people make decisions and affordability in that, you know, uh, in, in this conversation is one of those things. It's like, okay, let's go back to the conversation. I'd like to hear your view, what you see, what do we know really? I mean, well, a lot of it, there's no data to support it. It's about just history of being in an industry, being in a workforce, uh, conversations, but you look at the savings rate of people. Uh, what do you think is going to happen to the savings? Do you think now that, you know, things are opened up again, do you think people are going to come pouring? So do you think, uh, I don't know, let's say the end of the third quarter, we're going to see huge numbers. You're going to see this giant growth because people are spending money. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. Now, I would caveat that by saying, I think this freaking Delta variant is a bigger deal than people realize yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll use one of my relatives as an example. And this is a, a lady in her mid seventies and she's sort of a good barometer of like sentiment that mm-hmm. I've seen. And she was extremely excited to get back out and, you know, have people over to her house and mm-hmm. let's go back a couple months ago. And now all of a sudden we're seeing a bit of an outbreak in Delta and she's reading these headlines of, you know, it breaking through in places like Israel where they've got high vaccination rates. And, you know, and, and, and the funny thing is the people that are vaccinated that are getting it are not really getting sick. It's like a bit of a cold, right? Mm-hmm. But but it's the psychology of knowing that people are still getting COVID. And I've seen just this subtle shift in her in her views on that. And and so that's the one thing that I'm like, ah, oh, geez, I, I don't yet know how big a deal Delta is going to be. But, but assuming that we can keep this thing on, in check and get, keep the vaccinations rolling out and, uh, and, and reduce this thing to, let's just say, a bad cold. I think people are so eager to spend. Mm-hmm. I really do. And, there's, and, and not only are they eager to spend, there's so much dry powder there. I mean, there's, so, and there's almost a quarter of a trillion dollars in excess yeah. savings. Yeah. Just, I mean, liquid excess savings, just sitting there ready to be spent. Mm-hmm. That is so huge. And, and so you know, the big question that economists are wrestling with right now is exactly what you said. Like, what's everybody going to do with that? And there's one camp that says, look, people have been fundamentally scarred by COVID and they're going to want to have this big cash cushion because, you know, we don't know when the next lockdown is going to come and everyone's still worried about their employment, all this stuff. I don't buy that at all. I think people have very short memories. Mm-hmm. And I think that once we're through this, everyone's going to just spend so quickly. And what's interesting is the Bank of Canada actually had good data on this where they they did. I mean, again, it's survey data, so so discounted as you will. But they basically said, like, what are what are your intentions with this excess savings? And a way higher share of households said they were planning on spending it mm-hmm. than what the Bank of Canada was expecting. Mm-hmm. And that tells you that there's probably going to be an upside surprise in GDP in 22 and 23 as people go out and spend all this, right? Like, I think mm-hmm. it's going to be so hard to rent a cottage or find it already is it's you know anything related to recreation like good luck finding a sea or good luck finding a set of skis or a bike like it's just people just are they've been cooped up and they want to spend and this is so bullish for the economy i believe over the next year i think people are still dramatically underappreciating how strong the economy is going to be 
unless this damn variant comes back and really bites us in the ass. Barring that, this thing's going to boom. You know, I'm a bit of a contrarian. Like, I would, I would, I don't disagree with that. But here's what I'm looking at. Number one, a lot of the, a lot of issues we're going to bump into. By the way, by the, you know, just because I've got a familiarity with the industry. A lot of people went out and bought bikes, but the biggest issue with bikes right now is there's no supply. So we're running into this whole supply yes. issue of a lot of different products, by the way. Uh, but that's an aside. I think that, uh, you know, even if the variant doesn't show up and there isn't another lockdown, my guess is, is there's going to be another lockdown. But just let's just say that there isn't. I still believe, and, and here's here's my here's my science behind it. So I go to Vancouver. I, you know, I hang out in Lower Mainland. I go to Edmonton. Here's my observation. Who's wearing masks? Who's not wearing masks? There's no mandate to wear masks these days. And I'm looking at, you go to different areas and there's a lot of people wearing masks or there's no people wearing masks. And my, my kind of, my interpretation of that is that decisions to spend money will also be driven by confidence in the economy and or the, or the decision to not spend money will be driven by fear. And uh, to your point, scarred. So I'm looking at individuals who are still really worried about COVID, have a concern about it. You see those individuals, they're wearing masks. You see other individuals, they're not wearing masks. And I, and I think that, to me, that's a bit of an indicator, right? You know, there's, there's that, that, that cohort of the population or those, that particular group in the population that goes, no, I'm good. I, I think that we don't need to wear masks. And you got the others that are going, no, we need to wear masks. Those are probably the money savers. That's that's my science, right? It's like, it, it's all bullshit. I have no idea, but that's what I'm using as an indicator, right? Because I think it's going to be a lot of uh, fear-driven decisions when it comes to spending money. That's often what it is, you know, uh, 20 years of uh, coaching and working with individuals around uh, investing. Fear is such a powerful driver in behind it all when it comes to money and dollars and cents. So that's what I see. That's my view of it. So... Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's not a bad way to think about it. I, and I would also say, like, I don't think it's at all related to lockdowns, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the countries that never locked down, and quote unquote, they never quote unquote locked down officially, mm -hmm. there, there's no discernible change in their GDP compared right. to countries that locked down significantly. Like, I had mandated lockdowns. And the reality is that once the virus starts spreading again, you don't need to tell people to lock down. They do it on their own, mm -hmm. right? And so you're right. that 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 is the big risk to, to this whole mm -hmm. outlook is... Mm -hmm. If you get this variant start breaking through, and even if people aren't getting really sick, but just the cases are ticking back up, I, I've seen it already in my own relatives. They get they get nervous already. Yeah. So I agree with you. I still think, man, I still think that the the bias is that people are going to want to spend. Yeah. And I, I think that people have been cooped up. You know, you, you, people with young families are going, geez, I only have so many summers with my kids mm -hmm. until they're out of the house. Like, I just, I want to go do stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, that that's a powerful emotion and that you just can't, it's like you can hold a balloon underwater for so long and then it just it wants to come back to the surface and that's spending, I think. But here's a fundamental around that and and, and, I, and I don't want to hang out here too long other than this is an interesting thing is that people can't travel outside of their provinces, right? Or they can travel outside of their provinces. They can't really comfortably travel outside of Canada. So everybody's spending time in their provinces. So we do see a lot of spending going on because there's like being locked down. There's nowhere else to spend your money. I mean, there's lots of people that are going, you know, I'm not going to go and then have to get tested coming back into the country and being you know so there's a lot of economic buzz and, and activity that are happening in our own country in our own provinces in our own cities because people are going 
I'm not going to Hawaii. That's way too hard to work. You know, like it's, yeah. it's, it's crazy. So it's going to be, it's all an interesting dynamic. I love it. I find it all very fascinating, by the way. It's just how my brain fires is to kind of watch and see how this is all unfolding. So we've been at this for a while, but there's one topic that we have to talk about, Ben, and, and, uh, and that is inflation or deflation. What's the word? What do you see as an analyst? Oh, man. <laughs> well, let me start by saying this is the number one thing that if you're an investor, you have to get right because mm-hmm. everything in any long duration asset, anything like housing, anything like like stocks, especially growth stocks where the earnings are projected over a long period of time, it's all going to be based on interest rates and, and in particular, not necessarily what the Bank of Canada does with the ultra short end of the curve, but 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 more so what the bond market is going to do. And so you have to you have to get this question right. And this is going to determine how things perform over the next five or 10 years. My bias is that I think we are at this point underappreciating the inflationary pressures that are building the economy. Uh, and I think we are going to see significant, we're already seeing significant inflation. The Bank of Canada is telling us it's just transitory. It's all related to supply disruptions. And certainly part of that's true. Mm-hmm. And some of that will start to ease as the economy reopens. Yeah. Okay? And, and I don't dispute that. And, and as a great example, look at lumber prices. Everyone was freaking out about lumber prices. <laughs> yeah. They're down 70% from their peak. Why? Because prices ran up, more supply came online, prices went back down. That's one example. And there's going to be things like that where we see the prices are going to ease as the economy reopens. But I'm not sure it's going to be everything. Okay, And I I think that what we're going to see is inflation is going to spike up. We're probably going to see, you know, four or five percent headline inflation later this year. And then it's going to settle back down, but it's going to settle to a level that's well above where the Bank of Canada previously had had their target. So I think we're going to see more consistently in the two and a half to three percent range over the longer term. I could be wrong on that, okay? And, and I'm not, this is not like a strong, there's certain things when I say them, it's like, this is a strong conviction of mine. This is not a strong conviction. And there are people that are very much in the opposite camp that think that deflationary pressures are gonna continue to build. And I respect them a lot. And I think their, their arguments are fairly compelling. But from what I see, I don't see base effect inflation. What I see is inflation in real time. I see, uh, when we look at things like the price of goods leaving factory gates, are at a 50-year high in Canada in terms of the year-over-year price appreciation. Mm. I mean, that is, that's absurd, right? Mm-hmm. So we're seeing that. One of the things that's really interesting is when we look at, there's a great data set that where they, they pull business owners and they say, how much do you expect to raise prices over the next year, right? And right now we're seeing, I mean, business owners across the country, that their expectations for prices over next year are surging. So these are the people that set prices, Okay, And they're telling you they're going to be raising prices. Now, I just told you that the Canadian households are in way better shape than we've seen in years. And they're sitting on a ton of cash and they probably want to spend it. So businesses want to raise prices. Households have the ability to pay it. And that's a dynamic that we haven't seen before, at least not in a long time. And that survey where they, they, they ask these business owners what they're going to do with prices, that survey is so good at predicting core inflation about six months out. And core inflation is the type of inflation that the Bank of Canada is very concerned about. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that we have, that I would say there's a high chance that there's a, an inflationary surprise to the upside. 
And if that happens, when I think about well, where are the risks in the housing and credit ecosystem in Canada, that's one thing that does have me a little bit worried. I'm, I'm in line with you. I think generally interest rates are going to stay below the rate of inflation for a number of years. Right. So let me say that again. I think mortgage rates are going to be negative in real terms mm -hmm. for several years. Mm -hmm. And that's a very positive setup for real estate. Mm -hmm. But... In order for that to happen, I think that you may see continued aggressive bond buying by the Bank of Canada, where they are aggressively purchasing bonds to keep the interest rates lower than they otherwise would be. Mm -hmm. right? And we're seeing that already. They're telling us that they're going to actually slow that pace of purchasing. I'm not sure that they will, right? because if the inflation rate starts to come back up and we start seeing bond yields rise, it's going to be inclined to pull mortgage rates up. And the bank is going to have to step in and do something. So I, that's like my base case is inflation is going to come up, but the Bank of Canada is going to, going to kind of keep their foot on, on interest rates. And so you have this scenario where interest rates stay negative in real terms. Mm -hmm. But if for some reason they don't, and they, there's like a policy error where they just sort of take their hands off and they're like, well, we'll just let the market do its thing. That, that's the only thing that makes me concerned because I do think that given the, uh, the unaffordability in some of the big metros in Canada, if we see interest rates, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we had five-year bond yields at two and a half percent, which was, you know, five-year mortgage rates at three and a half. Yeah. Uh, I think if we went back to three and a half or four percent mortgage rates, it would take a lot of wind out of the sales for at oh, least yeah. for a temporary period of time. Yeah. Right. And so I that's agree. the one thing I'm watching. But I, I, for now, I'm very much in the inflation camp. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's, you know, for me, the hesitation around, I think we're going to see when we talk about inflation, you know, it's such a big conversation because, you know, what are we talking about in terms of inflation? We look at CPI and, you know, the consumer price index, and there's no doubt, you know, uh, the other day I filled up in, uh, in BC and I think I paid a buck 70 a liter for gas. You know, I filled up in Alberta and I paid a buck 27. So, you know, it's, you right. know, it depends on what what we're looking at in terms of what's inflating. And, uh, you know, there's no doubt food is inflating. There's absolutely no doubt. I mean, you look at uh, the CPI and they go, well, you know, beef isn't all isn't up that much. But OK, well, they just substituted steak for hamburger, you know, so beef isn't really all uh, right. up that much. Right. I, I still see some deflationary. I think technology is going to really cause a deflationary aspect of it. And and. We have to consider what that means. And, and I think that the, the concern on the deflationary side of it is I think that deflationary side of it is that technology is going to drive is also in uh, the loss of some of those less skilled jobs. You know, that goes back to having, you know, but it's interesting. Well, it goes back to having, uh, you know, McDonald's do self-serve on all of their, you know, in a lot of their stores, you know, like just go in, push buttons and you, you get your order. Well, that just eliminated five different positions. Uh, having said that, we're not seeing, I don't, I don't eat at McDonald's, but uh, my understanding is that McDonald's hamburgers aren't getting any cheaper. So they're either making more profits or they're offsetting other costs that they're experiencing in, in supply chain breakdowns and, and just overall supplies that they're getting. And I, and I haven't dug into it any deeper. So it is an interesting one. I think asset values are going to continue to inflate. I don't see how they cannot. I don't see how we can pump you know, globally trillions of dollars, you know, uh, as a country, we can't, you know, a country of 37 or 38 million, whatever the number is, is you can't print this much capital and not have things inflate. It's not that things are inflating, it's just your dollar value is is going down. So it's it's an interesting conversation. I think housing on, in terms of an inflating asset is going to continue to be strong. 
I think uh, we'll see the equity market continue to go uh, because I mean, it's so far off the charts of making sense now that as long as they're printing money, I think, and, and loaning it out that way, I think we're gonna continue to see that growth. It's interesting though, when we look at travel, uh, Ben, and, and as we kind of wind this down, it's the one kind of, you know, you look at the impact of us not traveling, you know, in the US Delta had a record, Delta Airlines had an absolute record quarter and you go, wow, that's not Air Canada, that's not WestJet, you know, so when you look at the travel industry, the tourism industry and its impact on the economy, that's not a small industry. Do you have any data? Does anything show up for you? And when we talk about travel and airlines and tourism and that kind of stuff, is, are those numbers that kind of fall under your umbrella of things to pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, I, I can pull those numbers. I don't have them off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, in terms, I mean, if you kind of look at them as a share of retail sales, for example, I'd have to, you know what, I I would probably punt that question for now yeah, yeah. Um, because I would I don't want to give you an answer that's me talking off, talking off the top of my head. Yeah, um, yeah I'm good at look, that. I just talk off the top of my head. <laughs> I, on the other hand, yeah, I, 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 I listen, just talk I, off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I, there's no question it's going to be positive yeah. for the economy as things reopen. Right? Yeah. I mean, we, are, we, we, we do tend to see, we do tend to have a, 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 a very strong benefit from international Visitors, you know, travel is no question. There's certain areas, especially, that are going to benefit from that. Um, in terms of its share of GDP, I'd have to get back to you on that. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, yeah, the, just, the, I was the just curious. Base is still the same. People want to spend. People yeah. want to spend. They're going to spend as the economy reopens. It's going to be bullish. Okay, so yeah. as we wind this down, I've taken enough of your time. Um, I do with all my guests. I do a little bit of rapid fire questions just to have some fun. We didn't really even get into your story, your history, because we got so busy talking economics, which was always fun for me. And I was glad to have the opportunity to do that. But we are going to do the rapid fire questions, uh, you know, for uh, Ben Rabideau anyways. Okay. Yep. You're right away. Okay. Yep. What's your favorite swear word? Oh, crap. Uh, that's not that's... it. I know it. I know that's not it. <laughs> the S word. <laughs> I, don't get, I, I, don't, I, I hope I don't swear too often. But <laughs> one slips out. It's probably the S word. <laughs> okay. Do you, have a, do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Uh. G- Boy, you should have prepped me in all this stuff. Yeah, I, no, it's I meant mean, to totally just catch you off guard, and uh, and I know the geez, pain. off the top of my head, man, you're gonna stump me in all these. Yeah. Uh, let me think. What? I'm gonna punt that one. I'm sorry, man. It, there's nothing that's hitting me right off the top uh, of my something head. Something shows up, and, and then you can swing back to it. Favorite book or book that you know most impactful book or gi- book that you've gifted in the past? Is there a book that stands out for you? Yeah, so I actually just bought about uh, 30 copies of Sam Cooper's Willful Ignorant, Willful Blindness. So the whole story about what happened with money laundering in BC casinos. And uh-huh. I'm going to send that to a bunch of my North Cove clients. It's just really, like, I've got a view that, unfortunately, the, uh, <laughs> the, the political class in Canada has a tendency to turn a blind eye to things that uh, are not helpful for the the general public, and I think this whole money longer. I, I know it's some elements of that maybe got blown out of proportion, but man, this book is just it's so eye opening. Uh, so I, I that's an interesting one in terms of just general finance stuff. I read uh, Morgan Housel's Psychology of Money recently, and I thought it was fantastic. It mm-hmm. was just a really great book that I would give to anybody that's just interested in money related principles, 
in, uh, you know, more the psychology of how to build wealth. Mm -hmm. And and I thought it was great. There's actually a number of great quotes from that that, you know, are great. I mean, okay, so here's one for you. And I should have maybe thought that. But he had some great lines. I remember him saying, (laughs) I remember him saying, wealth is what you don't see. Right. Mm -hmm. I thought that was so great. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like all of these people that want to, take their money and they want to go buy flashy things. And they want to show it off. Right. And, and in reality, wealth is the stuff that you don't see, right? It's the stuff that you don't spend. Wealth mm-hmm. by its definition is the stuff where you've delayed consumption so that you can build wealth somewhere else. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually the opposite of, of that. And I thought, you know, there's some, a bunch of little simple quotes like that in that book that I thought were very profound. He's, he's an excellent writer. So I, I would highly recommend that one. Fantastic. So. Are you uh, Android or Apple? Apple. Phone and yeah, all the way. Apple. Oh, you're a full-on yeah. Apple drinker. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I never was. It's funny. I when I got onto it, I was like, "What the hell is this? The operating system is totally different." I'm like, "Man, this thing's crazy. I can't. This thing sucks." And then as soon as you get onto it, it's just like everything's just more intuitive. Everything speaks to each other well. It's just everything yeah. works well when you. It's just been. It's been way easier. Is yeah, my I, I've, I'm. I'm both. I, okay. I'm. I'm kind of. Uh, I've gone. You know, the team has put enough pressure on me that I went Apple phone, and then I'm out of MacBook Pro, and then I got all the bells and whistles. But I still, I do PC as well. Still, there's still parts of it that I like a lot. Your room or your desk or your car? What do you clean first? My room, and then my car, and then my desk. I tend to have a messy desk. So you have tend to have a messy desk. I think that's just part of your job yeah. as an analyst. Or what do you call yourself? Like, what do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself an analyst, an economist? Uh, what is? What I is? mean, I don't know what the title is. I yeah, I'm I'm just the guy that tries to flag interesting trends. So I guess the yeah. best would be an analyst. But I yeah. uh, I don't know what you'd call me. My work, you know, partly I'm detective. I mean, I've been involved with outing some pretty nasty behavior in some some spaces. I got sued once and oh. ended up getting dragged through court. That was quite a that was a crazy story. And it, as it, I was trying to warn some people about this really shady, crappy company, and yeah. they ended up suing me and dragging me through courts. The courts threw it out, and they ended up getting raided by the RCMP on fraud charges, and people <laughs> lost hundreds of millions of dollars. And oh all this. gosh! But I mean, that's like so. It's like part detective and it's part yeah. economist and it's part analyst, and so I, it's just all that. I just look for interesting things that keep my clients smart. Okay, well, okay, well, here we go because uh, next time you're on the show, we're going to hear that story. So, do you have a favorite t- uh, tune, a favorite song? Oh, great question! Uh, right now, I mean, man, I I used to love. Geez, anything tragically hip they yeah. love and the old Dave Matthews band I used to really enjoy I right. mean Coldplay like any, I'm just all I mean eclectic man so I would say jeez uh, uh, tragically hip like yeah. anything you know anything scared tragically or anything hip. classics yeah. yep yep cool yep. favorite yep. movie Shawshank Redemption Shawshank Classic. Redemption. I mean, I, anything, you know, it's so funny. Like, we got talking about this the other day. So Stephen King. You, yeah. know, you never think about that guy as being a great writer. But there's a guy, because my wife and I watched. Who says Stephen uh, King's not, not a great writer? I think he's an awesome writer. He's one yeah, of my favorites. Well, he's an amazing writer. Yeah. What, what I meant to say is people don't realize the amazing movies that guy's yeah. created off of his book. So Shawshank yeah. Redemption is Stephen King. I didn't know uh, that. Stand By Me. Stand oh, By yeah. Me. Yeah. Is a Stephen King book, yeah. right? It's a short story. It's the body, right? So 
you know, that guy is so talented and people only associate him with like these kind of kind of cheesy horror movies like it and stuff like that. Yeah. But man, that guy's had some of the best movies. So yeah, Shawshank Redemption, man. Dude, that's King actually Book. one of my favorite movies as well as Stand By Me. Two, those are two of my yeah. top movies. They're very, You would very not great. think those are Stephen King books. Yeah. yeah. Stephen yeah. King, man. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. And uh, last question. What are you grateful for, Ben? I have an amazing wife. I got a healthy family. I mean, I'm a, I'm a tremendously blessed man. So I, uh, my wife and my family would definitely be top of the list for sure. But, you know, more broadly, just the fact that you, you think more and more about where we live in the world, right? I mean, every, every single person that lives in this country won the lottery, right? Mm-hmm. Like, really, like we won the lottery. We watched, mm-hmm. with my kids, we watched a, a show where they were looking at like, not the third world, but the fourth world. So the poorest people within the third world. And it's just so eye-opening. And you're talking about like a billion people that live this in this incredible poverty. And you think, man, we're like among, as you said, like the 38 million that, that, that live in this one little corner of the world. And it's like the odds of being born here, like you literally won the lottery mm-hmm. just to wake up and be here. Right? Yeah. So yeah, it's it's hard not to be grateful living where there's lots of things that aren't perfect about Canada, but man, if you can't see the good things that's, that's happening in this country, like you're crazy. I think that's an interesting you know point of view that you bring to it, and it's a it's a great reminder. You know, I think that we can all what we normalize is is what we normalize, right? This is you know our life and our lifestyle and the country we live in is all normal. We can you know bitch quite loudly about the politics and the politicians and not get shot. You know, there's a lot of things that. We can do. We live in, you know, a pretty clean environment in spite of what the environmentalists tell us. I mean, this is a pretty cool country that way. But we do. I I, I like what you just said, which is sharing with your kids uh, just, you know, a, a perspective, another world, even if it's not there. I have a, a couple of... Uh, of guests that I've had on the show that have dragged their kids into, uh, you know, third world countries and, and as dangerous as that might seem. And some parents would disagree with, they said, I wouldn't have done it any other way. It's, you know, they were young and they got a total different view of the world and, uh, it makes you appreciate that much more. So, uh, that's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic that we have. Yeah. I, I was almost going to get political there for a minute, but I'm not going to because uh, <laughs> it's so easy to, I hear you. I'm, I'm not, so I'm not, to, like, listen, wait, I'm not ignorant to all the realities of living in Canada, but whatever. if there's it's anybody who won a lottery, it was our prime minister, but that's a whole different well, conversation. That's, you know? that's a whole other conversation for sure. <laughs> Anyways, Ben, I am grateful to have had the opportunity to ha- have you on my show. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show when I reached out to you and uh, you could have just said, yeah, no, but you didn't. So I appreciate that. And uh, for anybody listening, uh, once again, uh, give us the name of your, are we going to call it a newsletter? Because I'll tell you what, there's a lot of RAIN members that are, I mean, they get a lot of research from us because we have a whole research team kind of like you in that regard, but you give a nice perspective and, uh, you know, so, but we may as well point it out to anybody who wants to look at it. Yeah. Sure. So it's edgeanalytics.ca. Yeah. So the company is Edge Realty Analytics. And, you know, it's a monthly subscription. You can cancel it anytime. So if you sign up and you think it sucks, you're out the one month subscription and that's it. But yeah. but all the, the reports are on there for you to see. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it is sort of institutional level research that's made available to you have to be a real estate professional unfortunately yeah. so if you try to sign up with a gmail account you're gonna get kicked out that's yeah, yeah, the only yeah. thing. you know i i've uh, i've enjoyed what i've seen so far and uh i think anybody who's investing in real estate it's good data 
It's uh, good insights into what's going on in different regions, although you talk nationally. Uh, we know that you think regionally often, so that's that's a good thing. And uh, we uh, could recommend that, that newsletter. So, Ben, once again, thank you so much for your time, your energy, and your insights that you've shared today. Thanks, Patrick. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time... Patrick out.